Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Mishkin, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Uh, my co-host, Rob Hunt, is out again this week traveling, this time out on the East Coast. Uh, but Rob promised, promised us that he's going to join us next week, and we'll be talking about next week's show a little bit at the end of this show because it's really going to be a, uh, a special show. We're going to have a longtime rock and roll legend join us who now uh, has his hands in the uh, cannabis game and is doing very well there, too. And we're going to really look forward to talking to him. So stick around to the end of the show, and you'll get a little more detail on where we're going next week with that. Um, I am joined, as always, by our producer Dan Hummiston uh, down in lovely Florida uh, and finally we have temperatures up here to match him uh, not so much fun boy there is just so much to talk about today uh, but let's keep doing what we've been doing all along and we've got a tremendous show for you guys today it is the 4th of July uh, our nation's birthday and a good time to celebrate our nation in the midst of all the other craziness that's going on and so today's show you know has to be a 4th of July show and it is so Dan if you could go ahead and spin the uh, first tune we have on that that would be great Wow. Okay, so let's get a little background on what we're listening to. Fourth uh, of July, Grateful Dead at the Stand- Sandstone Amphitheater in Bonner Springs, Kansas, uh, not that far outside of Kansas City, right on the state line. Um, and uh, I flew out there the day before from Chicago uh, with my good buddy JT, uh, who would always go to a lot of shows with me, and uh, always a pleasure to have JT along for the ride. And on this time, we were joined by our good friends uh, Susie and Andy. Uh, who decided to do the husband-wife thing and, and tag along out to uh, lovely Kansas. And uh, boy, did we have a good time out there. Um, it was about 110 degrees, or at least it felt like it. This was a classic Midwest shed theater without the shed, without the roof. It was an absolute wide-open pavilion. So there was no place anywhere you could go uh, to get out of the sun along the edges of the uh uh, the perimeter of this, the, the, the lawn and other stuff like that. There were some trees and a few people were all trying to squeeze underneath them. The lines to get into the bathroom were ridiculous because everybody was trying to get out of the sun. So I opened our show today with this tune, uh, even though the boys came out and in the midst of all that uh, horrible weather opened with cold rain and snow, which I'm sure they thought was funny. And the rest of us were kind of like, let's go. Uh, they then slipped into a uh, Bobby Weir special walk in blues which similarly on a hot, really hot day here in Bobby up there singing the blues about walking. Uh, in fact, we had to walk quite a ways into the show because it was, he had to go down like a little two lane road to get in and it was all jammed up. And, uh, you know, one of those days where the aggravation was almost not worth it, but it's, it's never not worth it. So uh, with all of us there and in good spirits, we, we forged on, but after cold rain and snow and walking blues, Jerry hit into Ma- Mississippi half step. And at least for me at that point, the show really took off 
just seem to keep getting better and better. And the hardest part of today's show is sitting here trying to figure out which of these tunes uh, we're going to play. I would highly recommend, uh, especially uh, today being the 4th of July. If you've never listened to this show, please go back and listen to it. 4th of July, 1990. Grateful Dead from the Sandstone Amphitheater. Uh, We'll get into a little bit more of this show uh, in a few minutes, but I got a couple of things I want to talk about first. The first is is, uh, Grateful Dead related, and that is that uh, this past weekend, and I know not for you guys this past weekend, but the weekend uh, before the last full weekend in uh, June, uh, I got to go catch a couple of Dead & Company shows out at Wrigley Field. For me, that's always a great, great time. Uh, We'll talk about the music in a minute, uh, but just strictly from the point of view of an event that you can go out and it's as close to a gathering of the tribe uh, of deadheads as you can get these days, in my opinion. You know, Phil Lesh tends to play before much smaller crowds, J-Rad as well. Uh, But these are are the deadheads. Everybody's coming out to see Bobby, to see the drummers. And we'll talk about Billy in a minute because he was not there a lot, but the bit that he was there was was greatly appreciated. So Friday night, June 24th, I'm there with my good buddies, uh, Michael and Dan. Uh, Michael scored the tickets for us. Dan was kind enough to uh, accompany me in the car on the way down there to make sure we got there and home safely. Uh, and that was all much appreciated. And they came out and started playing with Jay Lane on the drums and Billy out. Uh, Mickey was there. We kind of called it. He was playing the fluffy drumsticks with gloves on his hands. I'm sure it's a vibration thing. Uh, but my feeling about Mickey Hart is it's just wonderful to have him out there, just seeing him and seeing his face and his, uh, uh, you know, his, his determination while he's playing is like the Mickey Hart of old, maybe not the long hair and the cowboy hat and all that other stuff, but it was great seeing Mickey. Now, um, you could say that the dead are a lot of things, but the one thing you can't say is that at least these days that they're politically tone deaf. And on Friday, June 24th, which uh, at least for the time being will be known as the day that the Supreme Court issued this uh, opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, uh, the boys came out and opened up with Women Are Smarter. Uh, now, that's just a classic move. It's a great tune. It's a great Bobby tune, more importantly, always played by Bobby through the years. And we've talked about it because the introduction can be confused with the introduction to Ico. And whenever they would do it, we would always sit there and hope it was Ico. And there was a period in the mid-80s where it was almost always Women Are Smarter. But it's a great tune. And, it, you know, it, you can take it in whatever spirit you want the song. But, uh, you know, it says what it says. And, and they, they say what they say about it. And... You know, on that day, maybe that's maybe that's a nice way for the dead to say, "Hey, we're out there with you," and you know, we're 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 aware of this, and and uh, you know, certainly for people, that was a very devastating decision for all the people who might be uh, satisfied or happy about it. There's a lot of people who uh, for for whom it's going to cause a lot of problems and are are not as happy. And I think it's nice to be able to go to a dead show and see that part of the dead community and the crowd that you're in uh, is very supportive, certainly of of that community. Uh, and of that group of women uh, who are looking for that type of medical uh, availability to be able to have. So it was it was a great time and a great spirit all night. They came right out of that into Eyes of the World and then into my all-time favorite opener, Bertha. And then out of nowhere, they pulled out a, um, uh, a version of Next Time You See Me, uh, an old blues tune that uh, John sang very well um, and, and really did a good job on. And I was happy to hear that. And then they started to have a little dead and company fun where they slipped off into dark star uh and after meandering around for a while bobby did sing verse one uh and then it was immediately out into dear mr fantasy and into the hey jude uh reprise that you know any deadhead who saw uh the dead really anytime from red rocks in 1984 on know that dear mr fantasy was a regular part of the rotation and the hey jude reprise slipped in there somewhere in the late 1980s meaning just the part at the very end of the song where they keep going Hey, Judah, however they do it like that. I don't know how to sing, but you know what I mean. 
they, they would jump into that part with Brent taking the lead on it. And uh, it was kind of cool to hear it. One time up in um, Cops Coliseum in Hamilton, Ontario on the spring 1990 tour. So right around this time, one of those shows, Brent, I believe, actually did the entire version of uh, Hey Jude, uh, which would be a uh, many years later takeoff on Pigpen, uh, having done it at the Fillmore West uh, in February or I guess March 1st of 1969 in the middle of their four-night run there when they really laid down the St. Stephen, uh, Dark Star St. Stephen 11 uh, Love Light set over and over again until they got it perfect, threw it out on Live Dead and uh, went out. But the third night of that four-night run for the encore pig pen sang the entire Hey June. That must have been right at the time the song was just coming out and they already knew how important and how great of a song it was. And Pigpen just butchers it. He's tired. His voice is shot. Uh, but I just love the effort. And the fact that it's Hey Jude just makes it all the better. Um, and here, you know, Brent's voice is awesome. And uh, uh, anybody who doubts the importance of, of Brent Midland uh, to the Grateful Dead needs to have their, ha- have their head examined. You know, it's interesting always flipping through the comments that we see, uh, whether it's in the archive.org where we find a lot of these shows or on some of the dead pages where they have all the uh, the shows listed or on the dead set list project. And I you know, some people like to tell a 50 minute story about how they got to the show and who they went with and what they had for dinner. And other people just like to talk about the songs, but there's some people who really have a hard time with other people telling the story in a way that these people don't like. And, you know, it it just kind of gets to be silly after a while. So some group of folks are talking about this show, I think, and really lauding how great and how important uh, Brent Midland was the band. And sure enough, you get somebody talking about the Brent Midland cheese shows, uh, which means to suggest that Brent, Brent brought more of a pop atmosphere to the Grateful Dead, and that as a result they kind of lost their uh, their their true roots when they went off with Brent Midland, and uh, after Keith Gauchow was uh, politely asked to leave the band, and uh, uh, they needed somebody new at the keyboards. I never saw Keith. I've heard a lot of his music. Uh, I think Keith is an amazing, an amazing talent, and I think he certainly defined in a very large way the sound of the Grateful Dead in the 1970s while he was uh, their their keyboard, really their piano player. The same has to be tr- the same has to be said about Brent Midland in the 1980s. Uh, and anyone who doesn't recognize that either has a personal issue with Brent or has never quite learned how to see the whole picture with the Grateful Dead. Uh, I'll admit that for some of us, you know, right at the very beginning, it took a little while to get used to Brent. It took a little while to get used to his style. Um, it took a little while to get used to everything. But anyone who doesn't believe that he was the inspiration for some gigantic leaps that the dead Grateful Dead made in the 1980s wasn't paying very close attention. He's the one who brought out Dear Mr. Fantasy. I was there the night they broke it out. Whether they had planned to or not, I don't know, but Brent was determined that they were going to play it. And while the band was going off in a slightly different direction, Brent just started playing it and started singing it. And sure enough, Jerry turned to him, gave him a little smile and picked it right up. And there it was, Dear Mr. Fantasy. Brent Brent pushed a lot of tunes and uh, made a lot of songs so great. Um, so great that I uh, you know, often joke about uh, what they consider to be Brent's songs and what they don't. And so it, you know, if you go and check it, Dead & Company, uh, when they were uh, the jam band publications out there that were covering it were, were ecstatic because the first night of the second night of the tour, Oh my God, the, the, the dad and company are playing some Brent songs finally. And they cited as their example, the Hey Jude reprise and another song called Hey Pocky Way, not Hey Pocky Way, excuse me, Let the Good Times Roll. The Hey Pocky Way was a slip for my good buddy, Dan. Those aren't Brent songs. You know, Brent certainly didn't write Hey Jude. He just was singing it and sang it very nicely. Um, and Let the Good Times Roll, Brent did play a large part in that song, but he and, and uh, Jerry and Bobby each sang a verse and traded off. 
So that could hardly be called a Brent song. They're, they're, they're not really playing a lot of Brent songs, Dead and Company, and that's certainly their prerogative. Uh, but the publications need to get with it a little bit more to you know, be suggesting that the Hey Jude reprise means that they're playing Brent Midland songs. But it was really great. And then they went out and closed out the set with Althea, which my comments are, it's very good, but Jerry still plays it better. A throwback to a concert in Folsom Field a few years ago when some youngster, pardon me, 20-year-old, excuse me, uh, tried to make the case that uh, perhaps uh, um, John had, had advanced to the point where he now played the tune better than Jerry did. Um, and every time I hear John play it, I always enjoy it, but I'm always reminded that he doesn't play it as good as Jerry. Not a knock on John, just he's not Jerry. None of us are. Um, an incredibly long first set, an hour and a half in you know relatively warm weather for those guys, and they just rocked right through it. Bobby, Bobby was you know dressed in his standard capris and all of that other stuff and had his cowboy hat on in the first set and looked very Bobby-like. Uh, and they came out in the second set and opened with Throwing Stones. And again, I think as a shout-out to uh, many of the women in the crowd, they wound up um, uh, putting up on the big screen that was there so the people sitting in the back, like me, uh, could actually see what was going on up on stage. And they started flashing a lot of pro-choice signs and protest signs that were uh, on display out and around the stadium before and, and during the show. And they're kind of, you know, cool if, if that's your position and, and the things that you support. And even if you don't, you know, the signs are still, I think, pretty interesting to look at. And maybe give you a little understanding into the, the views of the people who've just lost a right that they consider to be, that we all consider, or at least those of us who believe in it, consider to be a very important right. But they did a great job with throwing stones. Bobby threw in a couple of uh, comments about the Supreme Court and, and turned the, the political song into uh a little bit something about this issue but at the end of the day it was nice to hear throwing stones again a bobby tune it's great to hear it then they went into brown-eyed woman and notwithstanding my conversation with rob bleatstein and rob hunt many episodes ago uh i think this brown-eyed woman was a transformational in this show and more than one person that i talked to said that that was the song that really kind of launched the whole show for them uh, and i think the same could be said for me up to that point it was a dead and company show brown-eyed woman I really began to get a little bit of the uh, the dead groove going. Then they hit the estimated profit, which of course is always going to be a good one because again, another solid Bobby show uh, with a really long space that meandered its way back into Dark Star Verse Two for Bobby. Um, and then the, the breakout that, quite frankly, I had been waiting for and was was happy to get back to or to be able to see, uh, which was them uh, reprising the Dead's cover of the Merle Haggard tune "Sing Me Back Home" uh, with John and Bobby trading off verses. And for a band that always gets criticized about playing the Jerry tune so slow, ironically in this one, they played it much faster than Jerry ever did, much more at the speed that Merle recorded it at. But I think that the beauty of Jerry playing it is that he recognized it's a mournful tune about a guy on his way to be executed and that, you know, maybe it deserves a little more uh, emotional respect. But nonetheless, it was fun to hear it. The Dead hadn't played it since 1973. Um, so that was kind of cool. Uh, trucking, very standard, but good to hear. Drums with, surprise, surprise, Bill Kreutzman walking out on stage to participate in the drums with Mickey and with Jay Lane. And uh, O'Teal went back there for a minute and was banging around. Uh, and then into a space which, uh, interestingly enough, kind of made its way out into a Miles, very, very cheap Miles Davis cover of, of his song, All Blues. Uh, and it was a little bit more of a headache, I think, the noises they were making. And Miles does it a lot better. Cumberland Blues, Stella Blue. And then not fade away with Bill again, this time coming on and replacing Jay Lane to play drums. And how beautiful to see him and Mickey up there banging away on, you know, one of the dead's all-time standards uh, that, you know, uh, they just took and ran with and uh, made it as famous as it ever was. And um, 
it's wonderful to see Bill Kreutzman out there. Now, the irony is at this point, it's about 1048, 1050. Um, and understanding that they started at 635, that makes this whole evening already four and a half hours with only about a 45-minute or less set break. That in and of itself was amazing. I can't remember the last time I was at a dead show that lasted, a Grateful Dead show that lasted that long and had a set break of under an hour. So uh, we got a lot of music and it was great. But at that point, uh, well, everybody's saying, well, okay, figure we'll get our encore now. Uh, for the first time since I ever had started seeing the Grateful Dead, all of a sudden Bobby turned and said, oh, well, that's it. Good night. And they walked off the stage with no encore. And the only thing I can imagine is that they were bumping up against the 11 o'clock neighborhood curfew and uh, didn't feel like making a scene on that to go out and take a few minutes and then come out and play a, a tune of any meaningful length. So we didn't get an encore, um, but it was a great show and it was so much fun to see and uh, really, really enjoyed it a lot. We'll go back in a few minutes and talk about that again because there's night two, uh, which also deserves to be talked about. And uh, I'll want to get to that in a few minutes, but um, let's go from modern day uh, Dead and Co. And, and, and dip back into July 4th, 1990 and the Grateful Dead. And, and this clip uh, is really amazing because it's a bust out, at least a, a bust out in the Midwest. And as Dan spins it for us now, I'll come back and fill in the details as soon as it's over. Thanks, Dan. Lucy. Um, what a great song from the Mars Hotel album. Always one of my favorites. Uh, and the Dead hadn't played it since 1973. Not before this show, but up be before 1990, they hadn't played it uh, before 1973. And they busted it out on uh, in March of 1990. They busted it out for the first time at the Cap Center in Maryland. I think they played it once at a show up on uh, Long Island out at the Nassau County Coliseum, which is a place where they've loved to play, and we've already featured shows from there and stuff. And then they played it on the West Coast a few times. Uh, and this show uh, in Kansas City that we're featuring today was the first show of the Midwest Summer Tour, and there were those of us in the crowd who were highly anticipating that we might get the Loose Lucy breakout, and quite frankly, for me, was one of the determining factors that uh, led me to hop on a plane and fly out there basically for the day. You know, we flew out there that day, went to the show, came back, stayed at wherever little motel we were staying, got up early the next morning to catch a flight back and was at the desk bright and early the next morning going to work like a good lawyer should for his big law firm. Um, but Loose Lucy was great. If you, if you go back and listen to the beginning of the song, what's so cool about it is you can really hear the crowd reaction. And although I was tempted to play it, the, the se section that we just played is really one of my favorite parts of that song. 
and we really had a chance to hear Jerry kind of stretching out a little bit on the guitar. And how great is that anytime to be at a show and hearing uh, a tune played for the first time in a long, long time, uh, both kind of reaffirming and, uh, you know, very cool to be able to check it off your list of songs uh, that you're hoping to see the dead play live. And, and for me, that was it. And uh, it was uh, it was really very cool. And I uh, enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, I was talking with my producer, Dan Humiston, before the show started. And one of the things that um, was very difficult to decide was how do we address what's going on right now? Meaning that obviously the Supreme Court decision uh, a week or so ago here now has, you know, really, really deep impact for very, very many people in this country, both men and women. Um, And again, while I acknowledge that there are people uh, who are very satisfied with the decision and I don't have anything personal to say to them about that. I hope that they can recognize that there are many people uh, who are uh, just as equally devastated by it and will have real world consequences uh, as a result of that. But it's not an issue, I think, that, you know, really lends itself to this type of a, a, a podcast in terms of trying to dig deep in it. But then Dan made a, a really, really interesting observation. And in talking with him about it, I felt like it really kind of fit in to the theme of our show and kind of to what we're talking about. Because one of the things that we're talking about on our show all the time is marijuana and that we would like to see marijuana legalized. And we've talked about the issues that exist in the marijuana industry. And one of the reasons that the marijuana, that the issues do exist in the marijuana industry, and, and we've certainly talked about this, is because even though a number of states have said yes to marijuana, the federal government has said no to marijuana and they've made it a crime. And so if you're ducking and dodging and trying to figure out how that all works, it can be very unsettling and very discomforting to someone who would like to be able to exercise their right, uh, whether it's constitutionally recognized or not, uh, to enjoy the intoxicant of their choice, uh, whether that's a stiff drink of bourbon or a beer uh, or a uh, joint from the local dispensary. Uh, And it, it should all be available to us. But until we have some sort of federal oversight again that 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 kind of straighten these things out it's kind of a mishmash of state rights and interestingly enough and and i'm glad dan pointed this out to me this is exactly what's happening with abortion right now the 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 supreme court has said there is no federal right to abortion now they haven't gone so far as to say that it's illegal like with marijuana but they've at least taken the feds for the moment out of the issue and returned it to the states which is an uh something that that conservatives certainly believe in very, very strongly. And that's really just the same. We have a mishmash of of states across the country. Some say yes, some say no. And without a consensus by the feds at the top, it it really creates kind of a a, a messy uh, landscape uh, in terms of how do people go about exercising these rights, uh, you know, to be able to do the things that they want to do. And, you know, I think that without, you know, getting into the specifics of the morality uh, of abortion or the the very strong arguments that the um, those in, in favor of the choice would make. It's appropriate to just look at the larger picture in terms of how what's being done on the federal level can really impact those of us who choose to engage in conduct or activities uh, for which our right to do so is not entirely clear. And you can't lose sight of that, especially in the marijuana industry, because, you know, like I said, unlike abortion, we are illegal as far as the feds are concerned. And there's nothing that is stopping any federal officer who has the authority to do so from deciding today is the day we're going to step into any state, take your pick, and start arresting the first five people we find who are working in a dispensary selling marijuana. 
they can do that. Now, people might argue that they don't have the resources, they don't have the desire, they don't have the, but that's, those are just excuses. That doesn't mean they can't do it. Those are just reasons why they might not do it. Uh, but all it takes is them to start doing it. And all those reasons clearly fly right out, fly right out the window. And I think that a lot of us, you know, would really like to see very much this idea that, um, you know, that there is a consistency so that we all know how we can choose to exercise the rights if we want to choose them. And those who don't want to exercise the rights certainly don't have to be forced to do so. And I think that's all I'm going to say on the topic. Uh, again, I, I give some thanks to Dan for, you know, helping me uh, kind of find a better path and a way to address it within the context of what we talk about. And uh, after this, I'll just keep my comments now to marijuana. And uh, again, about uh, how nice it would be uh, if somewhere along the way, while you know everything else is going on, they could find some time uh, to clean up some of these issues, allow banking, get the tax issues out of the way, and really give this industry uh, a chance to flourish and to take off and uh, uh, to be what it can be. Now, uh, as long as we're talking about whether uh, some, some conduct is or is not criminal, uh, this may be a perfect time to shift over into our next song, from uh, the July 4th, 1990 concert at the, at the Sandstone Amphitheater, which, by the way, apparently is now known as the Azura, A-Z-U-R-A Amphitheater. I don't know who or what Azura is, but when you Google Sandstone Amphitheater, you get Azura Amphitheater. So people who are keeping score at home, that's what you need to know. Uh, this next clip that we have, um, and I'm going to have Dan run it in one second here, um, is a Bobby tune uh, that came out on Built to Last. And it, it's, well, let's go ahead and spin it and then we'll talk about what its significance is in this show and just overall. Thanks, Dan. Like him, I'm trying to hear. This talk can't hide with which I'm blessed. It's destruction of these twins. Victim or the Crime, uh, a Bob Weir tune that came out, like I just said a moment ago, on the Built to Last album, uh, and which just came out in 1989. So in the summer of 1990, uh, this was still a relatively new song for us. Uh, they had played it a little bit before it came out, like they had with all of their songs, but uh, once it came out, it really had a certain polish to it. And um, this was fun, but what really made this unique, I think, when we heard this song is they, this is what they came out and opened up the second set with. And they went on to an immediate three show run of uh, victim of the victim of the crime. And then our uh, uh, 
the next two songs we're going to get to in a minute. We're not going to do them right away, but uh, you'll hear them when they come up. And I'll just go ahead and spill the beans right now. Foolish Heart and Just a Little Light. Uh, so we were getting a new Bobby tune, a new Jerry tune, and a new Brent tune to open up the second half. And where they went after that is even more amazing. And we will get back to that one in a few minutes, too, and uh, pick up with that uh, little bit of walk through uh, the tunes from their final studio album uh, that we got to experience on that uh, incredibly hot day, both temperature-wise and music-wise, uh, in lovely Kansas uh, in the center of the country. Just really quickly, I want to switch back again to uh, Dead & Company, and sorry if I talk too much about it, but you know what? When I go to the shows, that's what I like to do. I like to write all the songs down. I keep them on my notes section of my phone. I used to have a little book that I wrote them all in and lost it a long time ago, so I gave up on trying to do that. But it's great. I can you know flip back at any time and see what they played, see my comments on it, see what's going on, and um, uh, it's all good stuff. So uh, this is night two of Dead & Company at Wrigley Field, Saturday night, June 25th, 2022. A few more people than the night before, but I got to tell you, neither night, if you were on the floor, uh, down on the field, uh, it, seemed, it looked pretty crowded to me, but we were sitting in what would be the box seats, the 100 level, uh, the first night in the 200 level, which is still the lower stands, but underneath the um, the first uh, balcony above you. So you're, you know, you're kind of shaded in case it rains, which it didn't do. So we didn't have to worry about it. But they came out and again, no bill. Jay Lane sitting in again, Mickey with his uh, fluffy sticks and gloves. But once again, he was out there cranking away. And uh, this night, my wife and I were lucky enough to be the guests of our good friends, uh, Bob and Sandy Hoban. You've heard me talk about Bob Hoban on this show quite a bit. Uh, Bob has been a guest on this show. Uh, he's one of the leaders in the uh, legal cannabis industry and now with Clark Hill out of his Denver office and uh, bringing cannabis to the masses, as I'm sure he likes to say. But it was great to get to spend time with uh, Bob and Sandy both, uh, both before the show and during the show. They're always a lot of fun and uh, special shout out and thanks to them. I also want to just give a quick shout out at the show to my good friend, Laura Ross, who was there. Laura is sister, sister-in-law of one of my very good buddies, Mark who I've talked about on this show from time to time because Mark's gone to a number of shows with me and is always kind enough to pick up uh, one of the greatest or uh, latest box sets that are coming out if they ever come out around my birthday in October, uh, like he did with this uh, Listen to the Rivers box set from St. Louis this past year. Totally killer gift when you're turning 60 years old. Uh, so I got to see Laura at the show too, and I want to give her a special shout out. Laura's a, a good friend, uh, and it, like always, and this is just another example uh, I knew she was at the show. I knew a lot of people were at the show, but we walked into the show and uh, literally uh, as they were coming out onto stage and getting ready to start, and we're looking for our seats and we hike up the stairs uh, to, to make a left turn into our row and who's standing right there, but Laura, Ma Laura Ross. And I'm thinking, Oh my goodness, how can this possibly be here? You are again. And it's just, but this happens all the time at grateful dead shows. It's the kind of karma we talk about where, you could walk into a crowded stadium with, you know, literally 40 or 45,000 people, however many people they had crammed in there. And, you know, it's not surprising that I wind up sitting one row back and five seats down from somebody who I know very well and would otherwise be searching out at the concert or at least hoping to bump into her so I could say hi. And there she was. So that was cool, too. So, hey, shout out to Laura Moss, Laura Ross, excuse me, and uh, great to have you there. Uh, this night, boy, they, they decided to do things funny and came out open with Scarlet Begonias. Those who were listening a few weeks ago when we did our show on Scarlet Begonias uh, may recall uh, that one of the Scarlet Begonias that I talked about quite a bit was the one that I heard uh, in the late 1980s at the Rosemont Horizon when I was there with a couple of buddies who were going for their first show. And uh, God love the dead. They came out and opened with Scarlet Begonias, Fire on the Mountain, and these guys fell in love with the dead 10 minutes into it. 
So they came out with scarlet begonias, but knowing that it's dead and co, nothing is safe and nothing is sacred. And in fact, uh, they quickly made it apparent that this was not going to be a, uh, a fire on the mountain continuation night uh, because they stopped playing and just took a short break for a minute. But of course, for us, that just means it's coming later in the show, where and when, and we'll get to that in a second. Come back with the wheel, which is fine. You know, again, it's a, it's a strong Jerry tune, but they, you know, they play it well. A new Speedway Boogie, which I have to say they did play very well. I thought that John's guitar and new Speedway Boogie was very strong. Uh, Bobby uh, plays r- really well on that tune, of course, as always. It's in his blood. And uh, they all jammed on and it. Was, it was, I, I love new Speedway Boogie, and I'm always happy to hear it. A big railroad blues that was okay. And then one thing that I've had a problem with, with these guys, and I've, I've complained about it before, is coming out of big railroad blues, they just go into this long jam, and they're jamming and jamming and jamming. And they're going nowhere in particular. You know, there, there's no hints or, or suggestions of any song that they're about to drop into. So we're just enjoying the jam for what it is and waiting to be surprised. And all of a sudden, as if, like, I can't even figure out what to, to liken it to, Bob Weir steps up to the microphone and just starts singing Dancing in the Streets. And it was jarring. It's it's jarring for two reasons. One, because there was no indication that it was coming. And two, because part of what makes Dancing in the Streets such a great tune is its introduction. And the whole little musical intro that goes along with it, um, you know, from the from the time it first came out as a Motown classic, uh, well, not didn't come out as a Motown classic, but became a Motown classic, Many, many years ago, and and when the dead would play it regularly, not regularly, but when they would play it in concert, uh, they would always have the introduction. When I saw them do it at the uh, Greek Theater in 1985 for their 20, uh, 20th anniversary shows, first night they came out and opened with Dancing in the Streets, and we knew it immediately because of the, the whole little musical introduction to it, and they just lost it here. It wasn't there. They do this with Mountains of the Moon, same thing, where they, they totally chuck aside the harpsichord, the very unique and important, I think harpsichord introduction and out of some jam that's going nowhere just start singing mountains of the moon it's just as, as jarring and uh i love the tune and hope that they'll keep playing it but you know play it the way it's you know give it the whole tune play it all uh followed by a tennessee jed which was you know strongly played well done nothing to write home about uh and sugary which again uh, is such a jerry tune uh but they really played it and they really played it long and again like the night before this set is an hour and a half almost it's it's about an hour and uh, 20, 25 minutes. And, you know, the dead never played a first set th- that I can remember after 1984 or five, that was longer than an hour. Um, these guys were not taking long set breaks. They came out 35 minutes later and dived right back in. Uh, the second set wasn't quite as long as last night, but, uh, they still played until 10 25 and with the encore finished at 10 40, again, pushing them past the four hour total limit with a really short set break. And that's just lovely to hear. Second set opens with Casey Jones. It's a great tune. You really can't screw it up very much, and they didn't. Uh, really good ramble in rows. And then what, for me, what I think was really the highlight of the second night, but uh, just a really blaze and help on the way, Slipknot Franklin's. And, you know, that, that it's such a great tune. They all love to play it. Phil plays it. They play it. J-Rad plays it. Everybody plays help on the way, Slipknot Franklin's. And everybody's gotten really good at it. So um, I was really happy to hear them do it. I love the guitar jams. And from a purely pers- personal point of view, it worked out great because my wife and I at that point were getting ready to leave our seats and go find the Hobans who had kind of wandered off in another direction uh, looking for a little more space and a breeze, which they successfully found and relayed back to us. And just as we were getting ready to go join them, uh, we stayed back because we didn't want to be walking in the middle of the Help Slip Frank uh, performance. And while we were sitting there listening to it, our good friends Danny and Andrea showed up. And so we were able to see them, give them all big hugs and kisses and uh, exchanging uh 
uh, information to see them the next day uh, at their daughter Ani's graduation party. Shout out to Ani for graduating. Good for you, girl. Go to Bard Nanandale and hang out. Um, so we saw all of that. We got to see them. Uh, and then after, during the drums, we made our way over to Bob and Sandy uh, space. And it almost seems unfair that we all know exactly what they played coming out of space at this point, because after all, it is Chicago. And shame on me for even a minute there thinking that they might not. Uh, but as they hit the first note, Bob Hoban, being very astute, turned to me and said, we just heard this in Chicago theater. You're right. They always do play it in Chicago. And yes, it was, in fact, Days Between. Uh, that Jerry Ballad uh, that never made it out onto an album. Uh, and he played the last few years of his career. Uh, my position on Days Between is Jerry had never really finished it. He had never quite gotten around to finalizing it in, in a form that he was happy with. Um, he certainly had some memorable performances of it when you go back and listen to it now. But I think what makes those performances so memorable for all of us is the emotion that he has in his voice and the style that he brings to the guitars, the way he plays it. And with all due respect to Bob Weir, he's not Jerry and he doesn't have that voice. He doesn't have that range of playing on the guitar. And I, while I appreciate that he likes the song and he wants to play it and maybe he's doing it as a shout out to Jerry and maybe because Chicago was Jerry's last uh, venue uh, over at Soldier Field back in 95. I don't know why he plays it here. Um, but we would have all been a lot happier, quite frankly, if he had just skipped it and gone straight out of the space into the next song, which was the inevitable fire on the mountain, which we had all been sitting around waiting for since the beginning of the night. And uh, they played it with good energy and uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, again, it's not a Jerry fire, but I sound like a, a broken record saying that over and over. I was a dead and company, damn it. And for them, they played it just fine. And then we got the uh, always necessary Bobby Saturday night on Saturday night uh, to close out the show. Um, they did come back for an encore this night. They gave themselves a few extra minutes and did a double encore of Broke Down Palace, Touch of Grey. Uh, without belaboring the point too much, Broke Down Palace is, is, is one of Jerry's masterpieces and uh, such a special song for all of us who have heard it and love it and think of it as having uh, such a perfect uh, role, possibly, you know, at various points in our lives and how it speaks to, to so much that really happens. And they're just not going to sing it the same way and they can't sing it the same way. And all in all, again, there's just so many Bobby tunes. Where's Johnny Be Good when you really need it? Uh, and then they closed with Touch of Grey. And yeah, I get it. You know, you have to have one final shout out to Jerry. And But here's my thing about that. These guys are dead and company. And they're trying to be known as dead and company. I don't think they're trying to be known as the Grateful Dead. They're not the Grateful Dead. But the more Jerry Garcia tunes that they focus on, the more they're drawing themselves back into that Grateful Dead comparison and not really giving themselves a chance to be the band who they are. And Bob Weir has tons and tons of great tunes, original tunes, cover tunes, so many tunes that he's played over the years, so many songs that could fit into so many of these spots. And I'm not saying don't play any Jerry tunes because some of them are fun. And we talked about that, but you don't have to play all of them. And, and the show doesn't have to be, you know, an ode to Jerry or a Jerry Garcia retrospective. It should be a retrospective to you, to Bob Weir and to, to the drummers and to the guys that are there um, and are playing it. And this is just my two cents. And I don't expect anybody to give a damn or change their life over what I have to say, but you know, that's just the way I feel about it as a deadhead who's seen a lot of shows and still goes out, out to dead and company shows. And quite frankly, if they'd had a Sunday night show, I'm sure I would have gone to that. Cause at the end of the day, it's really about the gathering of the tribe. And this is where you have to go to get that tribe to gather dead and company. You don't get it with anyone else. You get it with them. And it's just wonderful to be sitting in Wrigley field, with 40,000 people, almost everyone is getting high. 
the 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 aged ushers who are always there for the Cubs games and yell and scream at you, sitting there with their earphones on and just kind of looking around, a little bit dazed and a little bit glazed. Very 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 polite, very friendly, um, and we're all very polite and friendly to them. Get them a bottle of water or something just to show that we're nice. Um, but we do thank them for their service and keeping all of us safe and 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 all of that. But it's great to be in Wrigley Field. Uh, it's great to be in a place that I hate as a Cardinal fan, but love as a Grateful Dead fan. Uh, to get uh, two really good nights of music in with uh, two really good groups of friends. Um, and that's what makes going to Dead & Co., I think, such a special event and why I still go and why uh, I know a number of other people out there uh, still go as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, Dead & Co., if you've got tickets to go see them, man, go check them out. Enjoy. Uh, you know, expect Bobby to sing a few Jerry tunes. Expect him to, expect him to cram all the lyrics from one line into the first note of the line rather than spacing him out over the line the way you're used to hearing him. Uh, but thank God he's still, he's still here playing them. And, you know, we get to hear the songs. We get to think of them. We get to sing along with them as much as we can. And uh, it, it's really a great fun, and uh, it, it was a great night, and I was really happy to get to go. So uh, definitely go check it out and uh, enjoy that. Um, back to Grateful Dead, show of the day, July 4th, 1990, from Bonner Springs, Kansas. And now we're going to hear track two, uh, it'll be our uh, fourth clip of the day, but it's going to be uh, the second song uh, of the second set. Um, it's Foolish Heart. And uh, again, this is the new Jerry tune on the Built to Last album. We just heard the new Bobby tune. So let's hear what Jerry was sounding like on the 4th of July singing some new music. Heart. Um, thank God Dan uh, Humiston is the producer of this show because I would just let it keep playing all day. I can't cut the music. It's just, you know, he, he, he goes into a, uh, uh, a great extended jam after that. And I said, can we listen to an extra 15 seconds so we don't cut the Jerry jam? But, uh, you know, time marches on and we got to keep the show moving along. But Foolish Heart, um, I think unlike... Um, uh, the Days Between, which was also a new song that, you know, like we say, never really, well, that never made it out onto an album, but Foolish Heart, uh, we had heard earlier, it got polished, it got put into form, and uh, when it came out, when they played it, we all liked to hear it. It was a fun tune. It had a lot of uh, kind of an upbeat, jaunty melody to it, and 
uh, some fun lyrics, you know, sign the Mona Lisa with a spray can, call it art. Everybody thinks about that. And then you read a story the next day about how some crazy person throws a piece of cake at the protective glass around the Mona Lisa. And you're like, aha, that's what Jerry was talking about. Um, but that was great to hear too. So uh, now here we are in the second set. Uh, the sun's gone down a little bit, so it's not quite as hot temperature wise, but the boys are heating up victim of the crime uh, into foolish heart. And by gosh, let's just keep the uh, engine rolling along and jump right into this next clip and hear uh, Brent Midland's contribution to all of this. I have often heard that virtues all of these it never comes so easy when you live the sword. It's even hard to be heartless when you look at me that way. You're as smiley as the flower. Just a little light. That's what a great song by Brent. And so, you know, people hear that and they're like, oh, cheese, bubblegum. That's not the Grateful Dead sound. You know what? Go shove it. That's Brent Midland out there doing his music, playing the music the way he likes it. And the boys obviously liked it more than enough uh, to put it on their album, to let him play it right there with them in concert, firing right behind. And I'm going to tell you, if we had kept listening to that one, uh, they were about to head into a Jerry solo, which is really nice. And knowing that Dan doesn't like too long eclipse, I was contemplating putting the Jerry solo in, but said, no, man, if we're going to feature a Brent tune, you know, let's, let's, let's make this about Brent and no need to make it about Jerry. So, uh, it's great to get to listen to that tune. It's great to get to hear Brent. And of course, you know, the, the sadness is this is July 4th, 1990 as part of this tour, uh, they make their way through the, uh, Midwest wind up at, uh, Tinley park in Chicago, uh, just outside of Chicago, uh, for the last three shows of the tour. And then after that, uh, unfortunately, Brent Midland passes away and uh, he's lost to the Grateful Dead and all the deadheads. And it then becomes the, the Vince Welnick era, uh, which we're not here to talk about today, but we have talked about before. And uh, Rob and I both also think, I believe I can say this for Rob, that Vince kind of got the short end of the stick a little bit as well, uh, because all of a sudden he was trying to fill Brent's shoes. So all these people who were sitting there saying that Brent wasn't as important that obviously doesn't hold up when we look at how a guy like Vince was trying to overcome that shadow and everything that, that Brent had brought to the band. So um, I'm no apologist for Brent Midland. He doesn't need one. He's a dynamite pianist, uh, brought tremendous sound and energy to the Grateful Dead. And uh, the Grateful Dead, at least for me in the 1980s, would not have been the same without Brent Midland backing him up and uh, going to town on that Hammond B3 organ like only he could. So, Brent, shout out to you. Sorry we lost you so young. Um, Jeff Comenti, you're an amazing keyboard player, and we love you, but you're not Brent Midland. Uh, primarily just because you're not writing your own songs and singing them the way he did. But don't take that as a slam, Jeff. I've seen you enough now and uh, loved you the other night at Soldier Field. And uh, the way that he and uh, John, uh, John Mayer were interacting it was just really nice to see. These guys have kind of formed a little bit of a conversation amongst themselves. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just nice to see. And uh, 
very happy about that. So just a little light uh, was our Brent Midland uh, toss in there. Now, this is where this show from Kansas City really gets interesting because, you know, if you figure that this steps in to replace any of their standard second set opening ballads, China Rider, Scarlet Fire, Help Slip Frank, or anything like that, uh, now that they're three songs into it or right about the same point they would be if they had played one of those, where are they going to go to? Are you now going to get an Estimated Eyes, maybe a Terrapin? Are they going to play more new songs? Oh, no. No, no, not on this night. The boys were all ready. And, and out of the Just a Little Light, they dive right in uh, to one of the great Scarlet Fires, uh, certainly of the summer tour of 1990. And I saw a couple of them uh, and, and, and maybe one that in retrospect should have been included. Uh, in the show that Rob and I did a few weeks back talking about our favorite Scarlet Fires. And forgive me for having forgotten about this one for a little while, but the fact that it got tucked in uh, between just a little light uh, into Scarlet, into fire, and then into drums and space. And I had never seen that before. Um, I had never seen them take that route with Scarlet Fire uh, and pick it up in the middle of a second set like that. And it was uh, it was great because, you know, I, I'm not going to lie, uh, Victim of the Crime, Foolish Heart, and Just a Little Light are fun tunes, and they were coming out, and they were great. But, you know, there's no deadhead in the world who's going to tell you honestly that he or she would rather hear that than Scarlet Fire, you know, any day of the week. Uh, and they didn't disappoint. They came back and gave us a great Scarlet Fire. The only reason I'm not playing any clips from it is because we've had so many from Scarlet, Begonias, and Fire on the Mountain recently that I really wanted to touch on some of these other songs from this concert uh, that we've been listening to and that we haven't on this show at least talked about quite so much. But A Drums in Space follows a great wheel. Give me some lovin'. Stella Blue, a magnificent uh, Sugar Magnolia to close it out. And in uh, just a second here on the way out the door, uh, we'll uh, spin our outro clip, which uh, is the tune that they all went uh, sent us home to bed on, uh, on from uh, the 1990 show. Um, before I do that, though, just want to touch on a couple of things very quickly. Um, first of all, final round of shout-outs for the day uh, going out um to a birthday shout outs uh, to my good buddy, Don Hirsch, who's turning, uh, I don't know, boy, he's getting old, Don, on January, uh, excuse me, July 2nd. And then on July 5th, my brother Jeff is not quite 60 yet, but he's getting there. And my good buddy, A. Well, is turning 60. And a few days later, he and I will be celebrating with a fun group down at Tipitina's for an amazing show that's going to feature the radiators and that I will be doing quite a bit of talking about a little bit before and a whole lot after. And anytime I'm with A. Well, you can always expect the music to be great. So, Birthday shout-outs to those guys. Hope you guys are all doing well and having a great day. Um, and uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention that I said I would at the very beginning of the show, next week, uh, if all goes right and we keep our fingers crossed and hope that it will, uh, we will be bringing you an interview with Terry Haggerty. Those of you who know Terry Haggerty at this point ought to be saying, wow, that's really cool. And those of you who don't know Terry Haggerty uh, should go be Googling him and then say, oh, that's really cool. Uh, Terry played with a band called the Sons of Champlain, uh, from uh, back in the late 60s uh, psychedelic era with Quicksilver Messenger Service and Moby Grape and a whole bunch of these bands, including the Grateful Dead, uh, that were all playing around the San Francisco scene at that time. And uh, we're hopeful that Terry will be able to give us some insights into that period of time, what it was like to be living out there and playing in a band uh, that was you know, part of that whole scene. And you know maybe we can even get him to tell us a little bit about what role, if any, the Dead played and helping shape his music or if he thinks that he and his band maybe helped shape the, the dead's music. They're all listening to each other at that time. Uh, so who knows? But uh, Terry also uh, we're hoping is going to be able to talk to us about uh, some cannabis work that he's involved in. And uh, although I haven't had a chance or an opportunity uh, to sample any of Terry's products myself, I've been told by very reliable people 
uh, that Terry does an amazing job with what he does. And so hopefully we're going to find out a little bit more about that uh, next week as well. Um, so please be sure to tune in. We will have Rob Hunt back from his travels. Uh, actually, I think he'll be out in New York for his uh, summer residency, as we like to call it. Uh, but uh, for us, that's home for him. And he'll be uh, he'll be at the mic and uh, joining with me in uh, our discussion with Terry Haggerty. And uh, we've got a bunch of other really exciting guests coming up. We can't quite confirm them yet, but please keep listening uh, and you'll have a lot of fun with it. Uh, one last shout out that I do have to make, and I'm sorry, this is just one of those days, but without Rob around to stop me, I'm, I can't control myself. Special shout out to uh, Bill Kolb or the Kolbster, as we all know him from Ann Arbor, part of the M Legends group. Uh, Mr. Kolb uh, came back from a recent medical scare and last night made his big debut showing at the M Legends uh, Euchre table. And as his partner, uh, we knocked out uh, Ken Dog and Elrod, a, a proverbial powerhouse in that league. Uh, so shout out to... Uh, uh, to Mr. Kolbster for his great success comeback and the fact that he was playing Grateful Dead music all night right around the time our winning streak began. Coincidence? I'll leave it to you. Everyone, have a great 4th of July. Enjoy. Hopefully it's not as hot as it was in Kansas in 1990. Um, be safe. Be well. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly and enjoy the Grateful Dead and U.S. Blues. <laughs> listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.